Hello and welcome to No Holding Back with me, Susan Estridge. Each week I'll have the privilege of talking with some of the biggest names from the worlds of media, politics, and law. Nothing is off the table. I'll be speaking my mind and encouraging my guests to do so too. Today I'm joined by one of the biggest names in politics and media, Dan Schnur, who's been involved in, oh, I don't know, four presidential campaigns, three gubernatorial campaigns, taught at Berkeley, taught at Harvard, and has been a fixture at USC for the last 20 years as the head of the UNRWA Institute, as a professor at the Annenberg School, as holding a chair at, well, everywhere in USC, in the Communications School at the UNRWA Institute. He's been the head of the LA Times USC poll and has done basically everything there is to do in California and national politics. Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. Susan, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, I love to dish with you, Dan. What's going on in Republican politics these days? We've got a black man running for president. Does he have a chance? Um, He does have a chance. Uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina is currently polling in the low single digits. But Susan, you and I have both worked for candidates in the past who started out Uh, that far behind in the polls and found a way to make up the ground. There's no guarantee that Tim Scott will make up that ground. But what's particularly interesting about his candidacy is in a Republican, uh, on a Republican landscape in which most of the leading contenders have been very negative and very confrontational, a lot of Republicans see Tim Scott as somewhat of a Reagan-type figure, someone who's much more optimistic in a way that the Republican Party hasn't seen in many years. Since Reagan, really. I should tell you, Susan, since we last saw each other, I have switched my registration from Republican to Independent. Have you really? So as I analyze the Republican Party, know that it's not as an insider, but as an anthropologist. (laughs) I find that both very shocking, sort of, and very... I'm very much respectful of your position. I mean, you've been on the Republican side for a long time. Not that you're old, of course, but neither of us are. But you've been a Republican for a long time. You worked for John McCain as his national communications director, didn't you? I certainly did. I started in Republican politics in Ronald Reagan's re-election campaign in 1984, I lost to you that time. Well, I think we've evened it out over the years. <laughs> <laughs> we both had a few losses. I finally, um, I switched about a decade ago. And the you know it's ironic. Ronald Reagan, as you know, Susan, once had a famous line. He said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. Well, I could use the same, I could make the same point about the Republican Party. For someone like me who always considered himself to be somewhat centrist, at least center-right, as the party moved further and further to a more extreme conservative position. Like a lot of people, I just no longer felt uh, felt a, a comfortable home there. And could somebody like Tim Scott bring you back to the Republican Party? I'm, I'm very intrigued by Tim Scott because I feel like, as I was mentioning uh, a moment ago, he does talk in a more optimistic and aspirational way, in a way that the Republican Party hasn't talked in some time. Um, that said, he is a very conservative individual, and you know, I like to say that I occupy the space in between the 45-yard lines, so if you were running against Biden, that would be a more difficult decision for me. 
than if another Republican were the nominee. But he is, while a very compelling figure in many ways, make no mistake about it, he still is very conservative. And that is an accurate reflection of where the Republican Party is today. Do you think the Democratic Party is as far left as the Republican Party is to the right? I do. All my friends in the Republican Party think I'm a traitor. All my friends in the Democratic Party think I'm a squish because I won't cross <laughs> all the way over. But I, I do feel, and I'll use the football analogy again, I talk to my students about what I call 40-yard line politics. And I say, no matter how smart you are, no matter how determined you are, you're never going to win anything if you're not willing to get out of your own end zone and move to the space in between the 40s to work with the other side. I so agree with you. We are relics of another day, aren't we, Susan? <laughs> I hate to say that because I think we're actually right. I mean, right. I actually do believe that if you look at the numbers in past campaigns, the least popular Democrat or the least popular Republican will get 42%. And the winner is the one who can win that in the middle. I mean, that's always been the case, hasn't it? It's exactly right. And I believe that as time passes, American politics will circle back to that more productive approach. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen in the immediate future, does it? It doesn't. Somebody suggested to me that Tim Scott was really running for vice president. Do you think that's true? Um, I don't think that's true. Um, I had the opportunity to talk to Tim Scott a year or so ago, and I was very impressed by him. And he didn't strike me as the type of person who'd be very well suited to being someone else's number two. Oh, um, really? I believe that even if it's a long shot, I believe he legitimately is running for president. He sees the opportunity, and I'm guessing here, I haven't spoken to him about it, but he seems to see an opportunity for a more traditional and more optimistic alternative to what Republicans are hearing from the frontrunners right now from Trump and DeSantis. What do you think of... And I just think when I think extremists, I think of Marjorie Taylor Greene and what we make of a character like her in the Republican Party. Well, the, uh, the, the former Republican Senator Ben Sass wrote a terrific book that I'd recommend to your audience called Them, simply. And it's one of two books I assigned to my classes about uh, how polarized politics has become. I assign Ezra Klein's Why We're Polarized and them by Sass. And Sass in his book, he uses a term, which I think you'll get a kick out of Susan. He calls it nut picking, not nitpicking, but nut picking. <laughs> and he says what both parties do, and it's an understandable temptation, is we look for the loudest, weirdest, most obnoxious voice on the other side and point to them as the example about why we can't work with the other side. So just like a lot of the Republicans I know point at Rashida Tlaib, for example, and say, how can I work with the Democrats? A lot of Democrats who I know and respect say, how can I, I look at someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, they say, how can I work with the Republicans? I say, you know what, there's a lot of freaks on both sides. You know, the, the, the key is to find the smart people on the other side of the 50-yard line and find a way to work with them. That's true. I have to say, though, I'm sure you saw the Leslie Stahl interview with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I did. And I thought she was downright scary. Before that interview, I thought she was just a nutcase, to be perfectly honest. And I watched that interview, and I was having dinner with a friend last night, and she said she watched it, and she thought, this woman is downright scary because she's that good. And she's that good that she could end up as Trump's running mate. She's that good that she could end up 
as governor of her state. She could end up as a senator from her state. She's just that good. And that's scary to me. I mean, that's a woman who could be a demagogue and have a real following and have real power in our society. And that is very scary to me. Well, I, I agree with you, Susan. I remember when, when Trump was, after Trump was elected, a lot of smart people on both sides pointed out that the saving grace, if you will, of Donald Trump is along with the bombast and the obnoxiousness and the divisiveness. Here's a guy who really didn't know how to govern. And the thought was, how much scarier would it be for someone with a Trump ideological agenda who really knew how government worked? And Marjorie Taylor Greene suggests to me the kind of person who not only has an ideological outlook that I find very unsettling, but someone who's demonstrated a level of savvy. Yeah. And the question it seems for us to consider is what is it in this country that produces those kind of extremists on both sides? They don't come out of a vacuum. Uh, they clearly have an audience on both the extreme right and the extreme left. What causes so many people to turn to, I'll say politely, unlikely messengers? Nicely put. <laughs> and to me, whether it's Trump or Sanders, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene or Rashida Tlaib, there's a lot of frightened people out there. And the most extreme voices on both sides provide them some reassurance because those voices remind those frightened people that it's somebody else's fault. Right. And the most expert blame layers tend to get rewarded politically. And Donald Trump is as good as anybody at doing that. Couldn't agree more. What, what did you make of the CNN town meeting day? I thought it was silly. Silly is a nice word. I could think of a lot worse words for that one. Trump did make a little bit of news, but for the most part, we didn't learn anything about Donald Trump that we didn't already know before. Um, to me, the question, I'd be fascinated by your thoughts on this, Susan, is if you're CNN, or if you're the mainstream media more broadly, what did you learn from this about how to cover the 2020 presidential election? Absolutely the right question, Dan. That's yeah. the one I've been struggling with. How do you cover a guy when you can't fact check his stuff on a moment-by-moment -moment basis? Well, one answer, it seems to me, and we saw this in 2020, is if you think about it, Trump had some very... Uh, I think, valuable interviews with Chris Wallace, with Jonathan Swan. Mm -hmm. And one of the big differences, and this is not a criticism of Caitlin Collins, because I think she did as well as a journalist could under those circumstances. I think the lesson is you don't put Trump on live. And what people like, you know, like Swan and Wallace have done in the past is by pre-recording the interviews, it gave them the opportunity to fact check in a way that simply just wasn't available to Collins. Right. And I think Donald Trump probably set a condition that he wanted to do a live interview. And then the question is, if you're CNN or ABC or CBS or NBC, exactly, do you grant him that or say, no, we'll put you on for an hour, but on our terms, not yours? Right. And I think the question going forward in this campaign is who's going to set the ground rules? Is Donald Trump such a draw for CNN or for NBC or CBS or anybody else? that he gets to set the rules in a way that even the president of the United States doesn't get to set the rules. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, back in 2016, the Jeff Zucker era CNN decided to basically turn their platform over to him right. in order to get ratings. 
and there was a, a there was a very telling quote from Les Moonves before his Me Too uh, issues became public, in which Moonves, after the 2016, basically admitted, he said, I can't stand Trump, but he's great for business. Right. And it seems like the mainstream media learned their lesson in 2020. I hope they're not unlearning the lesson again this year and next. And, you know, to a certain extent, the mainstream media is caught between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, they should have learned their lesson. But on the other hand, they've been held responsible for ignoring the Trump voters and speaking only to the elite and for not recognizing, listening, and paying attention to this huge block of Americans who are getting, quote, fake news from certain media outlets and actually passionately believe in some of the garbage that they're being fed. And, you know, that was January 6th to some extent. And to me, and it's easy to say this from the cheap seats, because I'm not running a network, but I, th- I, I don't think it's that hard. As we talked about earlier, you do the most outlying voices, whether Trump or others, were pre-recorded, not live. You don't give them a friendly audience to play to. Um, and I think the other part of this, which I think can actually be done be- even better online than on cable, is in addition to talking to the candidates, if you assume as I do, you know, it's become a truism over the years, that Trump is as much a symptom as a cause as a lot of these feelings in American society, I would like to see good journalists spend more time talking to those voters. Right. Susan, you and I are, I'm not going to say old, but we've been <laughs> around long enough that you probably, I know you remember the late, great Haynes Johnson. Oh, I love Haynes. And what his real gift was, better than anyone, is going out and talking to voters about what they were seeing. And I feel like, toward your point, to understand why someone turns to a more extreme candidate, go talk to them. Right. Put them on the air so that people who don't have a similar upbringing or similar perspective can get a better insight into them. That makes perfect sense. Tell me, Dan, what went wrong for Ron DeSantis? I mean, he started out, he had Fox pulling for him every night. He had a full head of steam. It looked like he was going to take on Donald Trump in a meaningful way. And he now looks like an also-ran. How did this guy win Florida in a landslide? A tough state to win and an important state. And now seems to have come across as the worst candidates in some of the ones I worked for. It's, it's interesting. There was an article I just read on Politico a little bit earlier today talking about how no Floridian has ever been elected president. I didn't realize that. And it talked about not just Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, but Ruben Askew and Bob Graham and right. you know, all sorts of examples. And look, I've lived in California for a lot of years, uh, but I've lived here in a post-Reagan era. I moved here in 1990, a couple of years after Reagan left the presidency. And I wonder if in a big state like Florida or California, statewide office holders get lulled into a false sense of security and they think what worked for them in their own state is going to work on a national level. We watch Gavin Newsom out here going through the exact same thing. Newsom is a very smart guy, but he's very thin-skinned. And he benefits from having a California political press corps that's not that big and not that experienced. And I wonder if when he steps on a national stage the way DeSantis is, 
if it requires more of an adjustment. Because if you think about it, with the exception of George W. Bush, who of course had, he was able to watch his, his father's presidency, most presidents don't come from, or at least in the modern era, haven't come from our larger states. And I wonder if it's because it just sort of goes to their head and they don't realize they have to make an adjustment the way a candidate from, say, Arkansas or Illinois I was might just have thinking. To. I was just thinking of Bill Clinton coming from Arkansas and, you know, never having that sense of having won a big state and maybe taking it more seriously or, or something. I mean, he, he really just has fallen flat, hasn't he? Was DeSantis a better politician when he was in Florida? Well, that's the other thing, and you, and you know this as well as anyone in, in, the, in the country, is state politics and state government doesn't always travel beyond state boundaries all that well. And one of the things I've read about DeSantis, aside from his lack of people skills, is he goes to other states and tells them how much better Florida is than they are. <laughs> and I don't know if that goes over so well. And then second is, you know, in a statewide race, you can win a campaign pretty much on broadcast advertising. That's true. You know, most statewide politicians don't have to go door to door and person to person and face to face. And you can see that that's something that DeSantis is really living, having trouble with. He might get better at it. We'll see. But it's obviously a skill he never had to develop in a statewide race, in a state as large as Florida. He was able to just raise the money and run the ads. That's interesting that the retail politics in a state like Florida is less important than it is in a presidential campaign when you got to start in Iowa and New Hampshire, and you've got to do retail politics. I don't know. He hasn't impressed the fundraising crowd either, it sounds like. He's not won the money primary, as they call it. What, you know, what's, what's the old joke you know, about the dog food marketer? He goes, at a certain point, the dogs have got to want to eat the dog food. And for all the trappings and the super pack and the money and all the rest of it, if Ron DeSantis just isn't very good at connecting with people on an individual basis, then that's a hard thing to overcome. It's really tough. You know, we used to say in politics, you don't have a personal problem. It's a communications problem. They don't really know you. When in truth, the problem was that maybe they did really know you. And, you know, <laughs> Yeah, we have a candidate problem. Years and years ago, I advised on a congressional race in Pennsylvania. And the candidate was a really, really smart guy. Might have been the single most unlikable politician I ever met. And so we just, you know, we stowed him in the basement and relied on mail and TV and hoped for the best. But I was young and dumb back then. And I didn't understand that the voters really do need a chance to see that person and, and, and feel like they get to know them. Let me ask you before I let you go, what do you think of Biden? Is he too old? Is the age an issue? I think the age is an issue, but like everything else in politics, everything's relative. If there were a 40 or 50-year-old political leader who absolutely dazzled me, who I thought could be a woman or man to really lead this country to forward in an, in an amazing way, I would say Biden's too old. But as Biden himself likes to say, he likes to say, compare me, not don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. So until there's an alternative who's prepared to run for and serve as president, and I'm not aware of that person right now, then Biden's not too old. I think that's a good way to put it. I was at the debate back in 1984, I guess it was, when 
Reagan turned to Mondale and said, I'm not going to make my opponent's age and inexperience an issue in this campaign. And he just put the age issue away with a joke. And of course, it's worth noting what everyone was worried about how old Reagan was. In this campaign, he would be a markedly younger candidate than either Trump or Biden. Yes, he'd be a variable youngster. And <laughs> and there you go. One last question. DeSantis's wife, Casey, is she being treated unfairly? She's being attacked as being the Lady Macbeth of this campaign. I, I wonder if we're getting shades of the Hillary attack being turned on a Republican woman. I, I think it's completely unfair. As you can probably tell from our previous conversation, I'm not a huge fan of DeSantis. I didn't but guess fact, you were. <laughs> yeah, but the fact that a spouse is very actively involved in their husband's or wife's campaign, I don't think is a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. And to me, it's a really cheap shot and it's a sexist cheap shot to go after her in a way that voters don't go after male spouses. I agree with you. And I'm getting ready to defend Casey DeSantis, which I find to be an extraordinarily strange position to be in. But there you go. Oh, my gosh. We'll mark the date. We'll mark the date. <laughs> Who's going to win on the Republican side? Can anybody beat Trump? I think so. Um, I don't know who it is. Trump's obviously the strong, the, a very strong front runner at this point. But I'll say this, without making a prediction, I wouldn't be surprised if the nominee were someone other than Trump or DeSantis. And whether it's Tim Scott, whether it's Nikki Haley, whether it's Glenn Youngkin or Chris Sununu, I would not be surprised to see the Republican Party stay on an ideologically conservative path, but to reject the excesses of Trumpism with someone who's a little bit easier to stomach than DeSantis. That'll be interesting to see. <laughs> you can say that again. And if we can figure out who it's going to be, we'll be as wise as we are old, right? Well, I don't know about you, but... I'm, not, I'm still not patient, but I'm less impatient than I used to be. So I'm willing to wait. <laughs> we'll wait. Dan Schneer, it is so much fun to talk to you. We'll have you on again, and it is just a pleasure every time. You're the best. Susan, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, I enjoyed it even more. You've been listening to No Holding Back with me, Susan Estrich. Thank you to Dan Schneer for a great conversation. Tweet us at NoHoldingBackFM, and if you enjoyed this episode, please share the link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, NoHoldingBack.FM. This podcast was produced by Podcast Partners. You can find out more at PodcastPartners.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time on No Holding Back. No Holding Back.